Welcome, Francis Scotland. It's a pleasure to have you here with us today as part of Brandywine Global's podcasts, Around the Curve. I'm Katie Klingensmith with Brandywine Global, and I'm pleased to host this conversation. For those of you who don't know Francis, he is the Director of Global Macro Research here at Brandywine Global, and he's held that important post since 2006, where he serves as a source of insight for all of the different portfolios that we manage at Brandywine Global. Well, today we're going to spend the bulk of our conversation focused on inflation, and it's no wonder because this topic has been on everyone's mind with inflation in the United States, at least at the highest level we've seen in, in 40 years, and obviously a preoccupation around the world. Delighted to have Francis here to explore some of the implications of inflation and some policy responses to it. So let's dive in. Francis, just to get us started, where are we in the global economic cycle right now? Oh, hi, Katie. Thank you for being here. Um, that's a good question about the cycle, but it, but it's important to keep in mind or at least keep in perspective, this is anything but a typical global economic cycle. This is the follow through from a major disaster. So, you know, we need to keep that in mind when we when we ponder where are we in the cycle. You know, and typically recessions are triggered by some kind of excess uh, inflation, tight money, a supply shock, like a rising energy prices. But this time around, it was the lockdowns in 2020. So it's more like a war economy where suddenly the factories are shut down, employees are told to stay home. Uh, the collapse in the economy was apocalyptic. It was the biggest, fastest bust in economic history. And we've rebounded out of that hole faster than any previous, uh, more normal economic recovery as well. And the drivers of that rebound have been reopenings. We turn the lights back on how people have pivoted uh, to dealing with the crisis like us working from home and a whole lot of policy stimulus around the world. So where are we now? The U.S. is probably the only major economy in the world where real GDP has completely returned to its pre-pandemic potential trend. Uh, nominal GDP is way above trend because of inflation. In Europe, uh, real GDP is still well short of its potential trend. And elements of the Chinese economy recovered very quickly but underlying consumer spending remains weak, which is really another aspect of where we are in the cycle right now. The U.S. rebound has been led by consumption uh, until recently, the consumption of durable goods. And it's the only major economy in the world where nominal personal consumption has really eclipsed its pre-pandemic trend. China, on the other hand, has been lifted by production and exports, the world's factory. Domestic spending in the Chinese economy remains relatively uh, weak. So. This has been a really major, but very unbalanced rebound, and now it's behind us. All the leading economic indicators for all the major economic regions of the world are in retreat. Real economic growth has already started to slow back towards whatever the underlying potentials are in the various economic regions of the world. In the U.S., the pre-pandemic trend was not much different than 2% real GDP growth. Less in Europe. In China, probably 5 to 5.5% 5 .5 is, is their underlying potential. China is probably the furthest advance in the slowdown. And the issue now is how fast, coming out of 2021 on this big reopening, high growth uh, trajectory, how fast are we going to mean revert in growth? How fast will that mean reversion and growth take place? And what will, do, what will inflation do in the process? So no one is really talking about a slower economy right now, which is what's happening. And inflation should reverse as well. But for a period, maybe in the first quarter or so, it's going to feel, it may feel like a whiff of stagflation. And the real question is, how far will economic growth retreat and how fast and will inflation follow? Thank you, Francis, for those insights on the global economy. 
Um, you touched on inflation. That's obviously the focus right now. Can, can you just give us a bit more depth on where we're seeing prices up and what's driving them? Sure. Um, I agreed. Inflation is the buzzword, particularly in the U.S., where it seems to be going up everywhere. CPI, PCE inflation rates are at decade, multi-decade highs. Wage inflation is back to levels we saw 10 or 12 years ago. Commodity inflation last year was really, really, really strong. There's been a lot of debate on this topic on whether it's supply or demand-driven inflation, and maybe it'd be helpful to sort out the, the, the meaning of these two because it can help in thinking about uh, the drivers going forward and, and what's causing the inflation. So in a, in a supply shock, prices go up because you can't get stuff. Uh, you think about semi, semiconductors, weakness in cars, car production, and used car prices. Inflation goes up, but growth slows, output weakens. In a demand shock, prices go up because everybody wants the same thing. Inflation's up, but growth uh, picks up too if there are no supply constraints. So we've had both of these elements coming out of the, the pandemic. And let's focus on uh, the personal consumption of durables. So going into the pandemic, everything collapsed, including consumption. But by May of 2020, personal consumption of durable goods had rebounded back to the pre-pandemic pre -pre level. In the nine months following May of 2020, spending in that category went up more than it had gone up the previous 10 years by over $600 billion or almost $600 billion. So that's significant because the just-in-time inventories, global supply chains were all constructed based on predictable incremental expansion year after year, which is what we saw in the 10 years previous to the pandemic, but certainly not the experience in 2020 and 2021. That fostered uh, an enormous pickup in inflation. In addition to supply chain disruptions, we've experienced energy price shocks and labor shortages, all of which come under the category of supply shocks that restrict output and boost prices or inflation. On the other side of the inflation story, the demand side, particularly in the US, governments have worked to keep personal incomes from falling off throughout the crisis uh, because of the supply shocks. And they've done that by introducing uh, large fiscal outlays, the biggest in the United States since World War II. There's been nothing like it since then. Federal outlays went from almost four and a half trillion in 2019 to six and a half, 6.8 in, 20, in 2020 and 2021. That increased uh, the deficit by more than $4 trillion um, or added $4 trillion of public debt over the last two years relative to what would have been the case based on the deficit in 2009 with the Fed buying most of it. So as a result, the inflation rate in this category of durable goods consumption has gone from a level of averaging minus 2% for the past 20 years to nearly 10% at the end of 21. It is by far the single largest contributor to the overall spike in price inflation we're seeing now. Energy and food prices are the other two major contributors, but it's spread as well to wages, employment costs is surging, employment cost index is surging, inflation expectations based on University of Michigan surveyors starting to move higher. So this rebound in inflation, not just in the U.S., of course, it's global, but the degree of the rebound is in proportion to the amount of uh, fiscal support, primarily, that was provided in other countries. European inflation is up as well, but not nearly as much as in the U.S., but neither was their fiscal support as extreme. And in China, the CPI inflation rate has already crested and may be rolling over. And the Chinese authorities used the least amount of policy stimulus and were the first to tap the brakes as early as uh, the fall of, uh, of um, 2020 and begin reversing some of that stimulus. So obviously, stimulus is a big part of the story, and I appreciate you walking through the supply and the demand explanations. 
the Fed seems to have really shifted their views on um, what they anticipate uh, out of inflation. What do you think were the factors that pushed the Fed from considering inflation essentially transitory to now being very concerned that it might rise? I would agree. Uh, you're right. It seems the Fed has done a complete U-turn on its forward guidance. Uh, although their actions you know, are still way behind their words, they've promised to accelerate tapering. They've openly talked about multiple rate hikes, shrinking the balance sheet. In testimony before Congress uh, to, on his confirmation hearings, Fed Chair Powell talked about the size of the balance, Fed's balance sheet at $9 trillion being truly excessive. I find the speed of the change in the Fed's rhetoric really quite shocking. It feels to me like they're in full panic and they're worried that they've let the inflation cat out of the bag. After wedging himself into a corner with what seemed like ironclad conviction that inflation was transitory, uh, Chair Powell threw in the towel. He's acting like he's way behind the curve. I think it's the, just the sheer scale of the inflation numbers, the breadth of the inflation across assets, goods and labor markets, um, and the, just the length of this upsurge that has had them folding. And I think um, uh, pressure from the administration um, whose popularity is sinking in the polls, partly due to inflation. And I think, um, you know, comparisons of this outburst of inflation with the experience of the 1970s, a lot of people are, are talking about it. That's caught the attention of the Fed as well. That The 70s were characterized also by some major supply shocks in the form of OPEC price hikes, as, long, as well as a, a big change in the monetary regime uh, with the suspension of um, the dollar gold exchange standard to a free float. And once inflation gets into the psyche of households and businesses, it gets really hard to reverse without a recession. So I think those are all, it's a sort of a accumulation of factors, which I think has provoked this um, U-turn in, in Fed, uh, Fed rhetoric. It's definitely a big shift. And I, I do in a few minutes want to get back to what that might mean for investors. But just staying with the Fed, it now looks like markets are essentially anticipating four rate hikes this year. And if we do get that level of increase in Fed funds rate and potentially the Fed um, even fully um, re starting to reduce the balance sheet that they have, what do you think this would do to financial markets and, and what might it do to the U.S. real economy? I, I agree. I think it's one of the most important questions for 22, especially uh, given the, the, the market's current concern about uh, a policy mistake. Historically, the Fed hasn't had much luck achieving soft landings. And this, what I call this U-turn in policy bordering on panic, uh, has raised uh, a lot of concerns about overdoing it from investors as well as leaders of other countries, not the least of which comes from China. President Xi spoke at the Davos conference this week, warning that if major economies, you know, speaking to the Fed, slam on the brakes or take a U-turn in their monetary policies, there could be serious spillovers to the developed world, including including uh, China. Obviously, the Fed's going to be really reactive to domestic developments. And arithmetically, year-on-year -year inflation rates aren't going to peak much before March. But underlying inflation rates already appear to be retreating, which is a bit ironic considering the timing of the Fed's capitulation uh, to thinking inflation is something other than transitory. So with the economy slowing, it, as I said earlier, it's going to feel a bit like stagflation for a while. There's no reason to expect the Fed to be any more timely about the end of tightening move than it has been uh, on reversing stimulus. 
I personally think the Fed is going to be limited to some extent its ability to raise rates by the effect on uh, risk assets, something we've been seeing. There's already been a significant amount of damage inflicted in, in equity markets in anticipation of this shift. So I think the weak link in the daisy chain between the Fed and the real economy are the financial markets, the possibility of a negative wealth effect. As for shrinking the Fed's balance sheet, I think this is a very big unknown potentially the most important part of the Fed's uh, U-turn. I'm a bit surprised that Fed Chair Powell seems uh, as categoric uh, about this initiative. It could be very deflationary if the money multiplier doesn't pick up. So as with global growth, uh, I'm looking for inflation to retreat next year or this year, I mean. The issue is going to be how far, how fast. One thing to keep an eye on is the CRB, uh, Commodity Price um, Index. Like many other assets last year, commodities had a really big inflation, but they've stabilized. This is a, a pretty decent coincident indicator of global growth momentum, correlates well with inflation. It's been flat since October. So a significant uh, deceleration, is, I think, is already in the pipeline, which makes sense. Consumption and durables is probably saturated. And the best cure for high prices is high prices. So real incomes have been falling all year due to reduced uh, fiscal support and rising inflation. So given those trends, um, perhaps this gives us some insight about what's happening in bond markets. I mean, it seems that bond markets have basically ignored the spike of inflation. Uh, are, are, blind, are bond investors being blind to the risk of low real yields and spiking inflation currently, just like they were somewhat blind to the opportunity of high real yields and falling inflation in the mid-1980s? It really is remarkable with inflation near 7% based on the CPI and almost GDP uh, last year ending around uh, uh, 13 or 14% in the U.S. that the 30-year yield is only slightly above 2%. So the bond market is clearly looking through a lot of this. And I can think of a few reasons why investors might be uh, taking that viewpoint. First, you know, less than two years ago, the secular forces influencing bond yields were demographics, technological innovation and competition from globalization. Those forces haven't gone away. A second, um, the bulk of the bull bond bull market for the last 30 years has been falling real yields. Inflation has been pretty stable until the pandemic. So it's been, it's been a trajectory of falling real yields that has driven the bull market. And whatever has been going on in the past 30 years got a lot worse during the last couple of years. Surplus private savings relative to private spending uh, was, a, was a, a popular theory for that bull market. Sa and savings, we know that savings grew dramatically through the pandemic, although spending surged uh, due uh, mainly to fiscal support. And savings may have normalized more recently with the retreat in the savings rate. But global savings may be picking up again based on the increase in uh, what we see in China's current account surplus and, you know, reactions in the emerging, uh, a lot of the emerging countries were policymakers have been tightening. And a third factor, which might explain why the bond market is looking through this, is that sustainable inflations in the past have tended to co coincide not only with supply shock like we're experiencing now, uh, and you know OPEC 1 and OPEC 2 in the 1970s, but also protracted weakness in the US dollar. And so far, we haven't seen that. It may come in the future, but a, a material deterioration in the market's outlook for inflation really seems to, I think, uh, to be associated or requires a decline in this, a sustained decline in the U.S. dollar. In a zero-bound world, which we've been operating in for the last um, 
decade or so, most of the effects of monetary policy work through the exchange rate. And in a free float, any unusual strength in the U.S. relative to the rest of the world, which has been the case now for 18 months, gets shed into the rest of the world via a strong and stable dollar. So as I pointed out at the beginning of our conversation, most of the rest of the world is still operating below potential with the LEI's leading economic indicators pointing down, as in slower growth. So transitory is a relative term, but the bond market seems a lot more patient about the Fed, or maybe it may, it may be that the bond market has been counting on the Fed to do exactly what it's doing now. Thanks, and, and that was a lot of different material. I wonder, Francis, if you could just spe- spend a couple of minutes to wrap us up and, and just walk through quickly, what are the primary factors that you're watching now in terms of you know, growth and inflation and the Fed, and then ultimately what that means for bond investors? Sure. Well, because of base effects, year-on-year inflation rates uh, probably aren't going to peak before March, but they should retreat thereafter. And in the interim, probably looking for the U.S. economy to slow, albeit from a a pretty high level, but keep in mind the potential GDP growth pre-pandemic was not much more than 2%. No one's really talking about the possibility of a decent retreat in growth, but it seems the most likely um, scenario to me, which may conjure up a whiff of stagflation at the beginning of the year, at least for a while, before we head into the second part of the year where we should expect inflation to retreat further. In terms of the Fed having gone U-turn on guidance, the question now is, are they going to deliver? A lot has been priced in. What exactly are they going to they do? What exactly are they going to do when they're done tapering? As the year progresses, uh, will they deviate in any way from the hawkish trajectory that they've laid out? Um, and most importantly, what kind of guidance are they going to give on plans to shrink the balance sheet? That could be more potent uh, than any uh, decision to raise interest rates. So as far as uh, global bond markets go, stability in the dollar is probably the single most important thing to watch here. Dollar stability is a big part of the bond market, believing that the current inflation is not sustainable. And now with China taking measures to boost its domestic growth growth profile, how is that going to play to the dollar's outlook? Those would be the major things um, to focus on. Thank you. And really, first and foremost, thank you to our clients and audience for participating in this conversation uh, between myself and Francis Scotland, who's the Director of Global Macro Research here at Brandywine Global. Thank you, Francis. Thank you all. Have a great day.